Well, as, as I said, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, chapter 1, second week in this series, and I'm excited to, to go through this book that's a challenge to, to many Christians uh, as we read it to try to understand. And so I want to invite you uh, to read with me from chapter 1, verse 12, and then following into the next chapter. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Is it echoing a lot out there? Is it booming? We are having some major sound issues. Is it okay out there, or is it It's good? Okay. I feel like there's a lot of feedback. Maybe it's just from my perspective. Um came across this week a uh, post on Facebook, it's just a friend of mine, uh, posted a, a Wall Street Journal uh, article. And the name of the article was, uh, How Can I Make My Life a Lot Better Right Now? This is uh, from, from the Wall Street Journal's living section, and there, you're not going to be able to read the fine print there, but uh, this is the image he posted, not a very high quality uh, image, but uh, he was asking this question and, and sharing this, how can I make my life better right now? 
This weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal's Living section, it was titled, The Burning Question Issue. And what they did is, if you could read the fine print here, is they answered 18 of the most Googled questions. Uh, So the most Googled questions that people are wondering, the burning questions, and they, Wall Street Journal, answered them. And apparently one of them that people frequently search for is, how can I make my life better right now? And so that was the, the question that ended up making the cover story and that they are giving uh, advice for. People are still searching for that answer, for that question. What is going to make my life better right now? It's the question that Solomon is asking in this passage. And it's amazing how much the two uh, things lined up with one another. You can't see it up here, but the Wall Street Journal encourages us that here's some things that you can do right now. Um, you can make your life uh, make your bathroom a plant-filled oasis. That's the picture of the bathtub there. If you, if you just bring a lot of plants into your, your life, it'll make it better right now. I agree with that. Um, you know, look at the bottom right here. Find the perfect $10 wine. Like, that's what we're all searching for, right? The, the $10 wine that, that everybody, you know, wants. On the left there, there's the... the uh, how, learn how to make restaurant-grade guacamole. I mean, life would be better if we had better guacamole. I think we all agree with that statement. So they give a lot of suggestions. It's amazing how much they line up with the search. You know, people are Googling the search, like, how can I make my life better? Wall Street Journal is answering it. Solomon says, I have searched as well. And it's amazing how much he talks about wine and you know, making his bathroom a plant-filled oasis. I mean, I built gardens for myself and I watered them. These, he does the same things. The same type of search is going on. This is the search that he says in verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that was done under heaven. I need to test. I need to search for what will actually bring a satisfaction. How can I make my life better? When I evaluate the state of my life, where is the joy? And the answer to that question is, well, let's look at some things. Let's look at being wise. Let's look at possessions we might have. Let's look at being in nature. Let's look at food and drink. And let's look at all of these answers and test them and see if there's any satisfaction in them. Every human heart is searching. Whether we Googled it this last week, or one of those people that contributed to those stats or not, Every person is searching. Their heart is searching for satisfaction. The problem that Solomon is going to show us in this passage is that the search always ends in disappointment. The search of every heart always ends in disappointment. No matter what generation it is, no matter what story we're in, another article I read this week told the story of Abd al-Rahman III, who was a caliph, that is a prince of Cordoba in 10th century Spain. Great leader of his time, even though many of us have never heard of him. And at 70 years old, this is what he said looking back over his life. I have reigned more than 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. I mean, that's that's the winning formula for a leader. Riches and honors, 
power and pleasure have waited on my call. And then he says something very, very similar to Solomon. I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Here's someone who so watched his life that he knew the 14 days that brought him pure enjoyment. And he had everything. Respected by his allies, feared by his enemies, loved by his people, every power, every pleasure. And Solomon is saying the same thing. Look, Solomon himself is saying, I have tested these things out. There's an encouragement here. There's a subtext. Look, you're never going to be as rich as Solomon. You're never going to have the power and the influence and the, you know, the pleasure that he had. And so he goes before us in wisdom and he says, follow me on my search. Look at what I have done. And you will see the disappointment. It's going to be a lot of bad news before there is good news today. Though it is coming. There is always a search that ends in disappointment. Sociologists would call it the hedonic treadmill. Like hedonism, like with pleasure-seeking. The hedonic treadmill is this thing where our bodies always return to a baseline, to a stasis. No matter what pleasure we experience, uh, we, we experience something happy or good or good for our body, and then after a while, the, the results fade from that and we go back to the same baseline. It's the way that addiction works. It promises something we want. That will bring me pleasure, and we say that and we experience that, but then there's a new level of pleasure that's required to get back to that. This hedonic treadmill is what Solomon here calls an unhappy business. It is, verse 13 in the second half, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Through all my search, I'm just giving you the conclusion before I give you the facts. It's unhappy. Joy is kept right out of reach. And so Solomon's point to us this morning is this. The joys of the mind and the joys of the body will never satisfy the search of every heart. The joys of the mind and the joys of the body will never satisfy the bigger category, which is the search of every heart. See, I, I call it the heart because that's what Solomon does here. Six or seven different times in this passage, he refers to his heart, whether he's talking about his body or he's talking about his mind or he's talking about his experience. He says, it's my heart. Because in the Bible, the heart is the all-inclusive term for the internal person, for the will, for the emotion, for the, the seat of desire. And so he says in verse 13, I applied my heart, verse 16. I said in my heart, verse 17. I applied in my heart to know wisdom and to know madness. Chapter 2, verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Verse 10. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure 
in all my toil. The heart is what he's speaking to, but then we can see the two categories that he addresses in the first section, the mind and then the body or the experience. And he says in both cases, the conclusion is striving after the wind. It is a disappointment. It is a unhappy business. First, the joys of the mind. Solomon doesn't begin with what he can experience, what he can buy, what he can possess. I respect Solomon. He begins with his mind. He goes with what I want to first figure it out. Say this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the wind. Solomon, well known to be the greatest wise person who's ever lived, who was given a special gift from God Himself to know wisdom. To have knowledge And he says, when I applied all that, in part of my search, I thought about how can I figure things out? Well, here's the wisdom that I arrived at. Two Proverbs. You can see them there. They're set apart there. They're in a poetic form in the Scripture. There's two uh, things that he summarizes. First, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. The summary of it is this. I thought about things the way things are And I realized that I couldn't think my way out of them. I can't make straight what is crooked. Whatever is tangled up, whatever is broken about the world or my experience, I'm not able to untangle that. Have you ever noticed how even when there's smart people looking at a problem, that many of our problems remain? Many of the same, there's nothing new under the sun. We talked about this last week. There's so many problems with the human experience, and even though there have been so many smart people, they have not been solved. He can't untangle what has been tangled up. What is lacking cannot be counted. The idea there is look, there's some kind of abundance in my mind that I can't account for. I can't get back to the original, I don't know what the original was. What's lacking can't be counted. It can't, I can't add up in my mind what should be. And then the second proverb, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here Solomon is talking about the wisdom conundrum, which is that you know, in many ways, the more you know, the more you see what you don't know. And it's vexing. It's, it's irritating to see like you can grow and you can learn so much about life and then it just opens up all these pockets and it's depressing to look at all the things you don't know. And it also increases your sorrow because you can't fix it. You can't fix what's broken. You can't make straight what's crooked. And so Solomon comes to these pieces of wisdom through his search of the mind. Remember, the greatest mind, the most wise. And there is nothing wrong with his knowledge and wisdom. In fact, he writes this book so that we have knowledge and wisdom, of course. But there's something terribly wrong with making it answer the search of your heart. 
It is, in fact, the original temptation from the Garden of Eden, right? To know good and evil. To be like God. How quickly I want to know that becomes I want to control that. I certainly understand this temptation very well. I'm someone who is personally tempted, and I'm guessing many of you are, to believe that life is a series of mental challenges to unlock. If I could just figure out, I've got to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. I've got to figure out what the right work-life balance is. I've got to figure out how to plant a church. I've got to figure out that you know, we can mentally say, if I can just figure my life out, I would be satisfied. It's waiting out there. We begin to think of life as a problem to be solved with our minds. If I could just know. If I could just arrive. Solomon here tells us what the end of it is. Verse 17, I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Now, we haven't talked about that phrase yet, even though it's littered throughout Ecclesiastes. It's three times in this passage, a striving after the wind. The word strive there is literally the word for herding, like sheep or cattle. Something very satisfying about herding animals, even watching it. You can watch competitions, right? If you've seen Babe the Pig, the movie, you know, you, you like, you're rooting for Babe. This pig who's like a dog who routes these sheep. And we watch it, and there's a bit of satisfaction, right? Because there's a group of, there's a mass of chaos of sheep, say, or cattle. And, and one of them starts to stray, and, and a, a dog or a pig, I guess, runs out to the side, and, and, and the, it comes back into line. And, and eventually, all these sheep are herded into this one gate, and the gate is closed. And we think, what if my life was like that? I don't mind if there's some problems. If I can sit back from those problems and if I can direct how they get solved. But Solomon says, you might as well think about herding the wind. Shepherding this mass of air. And trying to get it to go where you want it to go. You simply cannot. And so, it's a bad answer to the search of your heart to try to solve it with the joys of the mind. But second, there's the joys of the body. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now I want to be very clear from the beginning that many, I think many people misread this passage to say that Solomon here goes off the deep end with pleasure. That he becomes like a prodigal son or an Epicurean where he just wants to feel everything and so therefore he abandons his wisdom. But he is very clear that that is not what he's doing. This is scientific to Solomon. He is in control. Look even in the word, come now, I will test you with pleasure. It's the same word that's used when the queen of Sheba comes and tests Solomon. This great queen comes to Solomon who is known for his wisdom and she asks him about the animal kingdom and she asks him about how to uh, you know, grow wealth and all these questions I'm assuming here she's asking. She tests Solomon and Solomon 
answers rightly. She sees his wisdom, but now he's turning those questions on himself. I will test my own heart. I will ask the hardest questions that I can possibly do. And I've already said that, that mentally I can't solve life, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe I should just experience life. Now, not in a hedonistic way. Not, he's not abandoning. Look, even in verse 3, he says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Then he says, side note, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He wants you to know. I didn't abandon my wisdom when I was pursuing the wine. I saw the wine and I thought, I'm going to test this. He's not saying life is terrible. You might as well pass the bottle. What he's saying is perhaps there's something in human experience. I ought to at least test it out and see what I might be able to find. Perhaps the body is the end. In fact, we can't escape our bodies. Maybe, maybe our lived experience will bring some amount of satisfaction. It's a valid question. And so then he goes into these different areas of the body and the experience and evaluates them. There are six of them. He talks first of laughter. In verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Laughter would be a great place to start. I know I've said things like this, and I know many of you have said before, that was the best night ever. We just laughed and laughed. Ever said that? Because laughter is a way that we capture the joy of our hearts. When he says pleasure here, what pleasure, what use is that? He's talking about joy. It's not like hedonistic pleasure. He's just saying it's the same word for joy. You know, what, how can I be happy on the inside such that it expresses a laughter? It's a good question. Maybe to, to set up your life so that you laugh all the time would be an answer. Maybe a reasonable answer. Ecclesiastes is pro-laughter. The next chapter says there is a time to laugh. We're going to talk about next week or two weeks from now. However, of course it follows up with there's a time to weep. Laughter can't be everything because what is its substance? It's mad. What use is it? He says. There, at the end of the day, to laugh is, is, is an experience that's good, but like, what does it point to? It's not enough. And laughing can be a mask. Proverbs 14, verse 13 says, even in laughter the heart may ache. He moves on from laughter to substances, drink and food. Read with me in verse 3 and following. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He's creating a world of, of, of beautiful substances to eat and drink. Fruit, this natural element, but then the labor of fruit, the human labor of fruit to make wine from that. Both the process and the, the natural occurring thing are good. 
Again, Ecclesiastes is pro-wine. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7, that wine gives us a merry heart. Wine makes life glad. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19. He says, even, very clear to tell us, not getting wasted, right? This is not drunkenness. He says, my wisdom stayed with me. But what about these substances that have the power to to gladden or to relax us or to make us happy? He says they, they come up way short of satisfying the heart. And just like laughter can mask you know, a, a sad heart, so wine can mask a meaningful life. It can become such a dangerous and wrecking thing that has the ability to destroy us. It's not there. What about nature? We've already read about his gardens and vineyards. Planting fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He's setting up his own personal oasis. And many of us think, well, if I could, I'd be happier if I just spent more time in nature. That's true. It's true. We're happier when we spend more time in nature. We probably are happier if we make our bathrooms a garden oasis, right? Solomon here is thinking about his landscaping. And the older I get, the more I think about landscaping, right? It's weird. It's weird how it takes over, right? Fifteen years ago, I couldn't imagine that I would ever think about spending several thousand dollars, you know, to make grass grow in a different place. But now I think about it. And I want to warn the young people. That day is coming. You think you will never care about landscaping, but you will. And I want you to remember that you heard it here first. Beyond, beyond this, the plants or whatever, it's the idea that I have a kingdom, right? I built houses for myself. Many of us think what I really need is the right situation. I need to, I need to have the right house or the, the, the right setup, and then I'll have some satisfaction. Possessions. Look at verse 7. Hard verses for us to read. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had a great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, to the delight of the sons of man. He's talking about the people that he had waiting on him hand and foot. The slaves here we need to say it's different from the slavery of our, our past as a, as a country, but at the end of the day, they still in this society, they had the ability to own people. And he's saying, if, if I want to own people, I can do that. I have done that. I have these people that wait on me hand and foot. I have possessions. I have flocks. I have gold. I have silver. I have entertainment. You know, it's every night. I have singers. The best singers. There's a party every night. And I can see, even in my wisdom, even before I go and get, go all in on it, I can watch these things unfold and see how it's affecting my body. It's good to have things. But they don't satisfy. St. Thomas Aquinas said this, when we get goods that we want, we despise them and seek others. The reason of this 
is that we realize more their insufficiency when we possess them. And this very fact shows that they are imperfect and that sovereign good does not consist therein. You see what he's saying? We want things when we have them. It's their very insufficiency that makes us dislike them. Then it's something else. But they themselves were never meant to be a satisfaction for us. What about sexuality? Here he has the concubines. Again, a hard concept for us. Very common in this time. But he has women. 700 wives, 300 concubines, the Scriptures tell us. And in this, Solomon has obviously more, more wisdom, more everything than any of us have. And he is not satisfied. Where is the gain? Respect. Verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I'm pretty much smarter and better than everyone else, and they know it. Has surpassed everyone. What Solomon is doing here is he's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. What is here? What is lacking from what he is able to create? And think about it. You're able to live in a place that is beautiful. You are connected to nature. You enjoy good food and drink and sexuality. You're satisfied. You have enough money for anything that you might want and everyone thinks you're amazing. What's lacking in that? In short, he says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all the toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. I had everything. And in watching that, he concludes in verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The search had ended in disappointment. It's vanity. We talked about that last week. Vaporous, short-lived, unimpactful. He's not saying meaningless. He's not saying that, that food and wine and drink and sexuality have no meaning. He's saying They're short-lived and don't provide that satisfaction. Striving after the wind. It's that herding. I can't herd my experience into one meaningful thing. There is no gain under the sun. Nothing to be gained. The word there really actually means extra gain. Or one English word that kind of captures it is leverage. He's saying, I couldn't use any of these things to gain an upper hand on what I was after. Trying to open the door of satisfaction. And I need to leverage it open. And I'm using toothpicks. There's nothing wrong with a toothpick. It has a use. But it's not good at leveraging a door open. I needed a crowbar. I needed something better to open this door than what I had. 
What's the crowbar? What Solomon's wisdom is teaching us this morning is that even though your heart tells you that you belong in the Garden of Eden, you have no ability to recreate it. And so, it is foolish to spend your life trying to create what only God can. Your heart was made for Eden, but your experience falls short of being able to bring it about. If we're going to follow Solomon's wisdom, then we have to ask, well, how is God going to bring about that garden again? How is He going to fix what our hearts long for? How will we listen when this wisdom seems so depressing? Two things as we close today. What we're encouraged to do with this when we look at all of the Scripture is to first settle the search, then we can savor the gifts. First, we have to settle the search. Solomon is clear. There is no mental satisfaction. There is no body satisfaction. There is no situational or possession satisfaction that will satisfy the heart. Our hearts simply long for too much. What will satisfy it? The answer in the unfolding of Scripture is that only Christ can. I love someone said about Ecclesiastes. They said, you know, Ecclesiastes asks the questions to which Christ can be the only answer. To ask these questions and then to keep looking in different areas and then not find that satisfying answer is part of the point so that we will look towards what comes later to the greater Solomon. And we're not the first people to search this. Solomon searched. Abdal Rahman III searched in Spain. People are searching every day on Google. How do I make my life better? And what are the conclusions that the best among this have come to? Look at the Apostle Paul who searched, who looked for the experience. He, he had a righteousness of the scribes. He had a great reputation. He had a great mind. He was a Solomon-type figure. And this is what he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss compared to what? The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Look, I've done all the searching. I've done all the things and it's all rubbish. It's just this pile of stuff. But this is Christ and He was the answer. St. Augustine, someone who, again, mentally and with his life ran circles around us. Almost no one smarter or better in history. And he tried. He went on his own Solomonic search. And he says, my heart's restless until it rests in Him. That there's a search going on, but I'm telling you the answer is Christ. C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire for something that this world cannot satisfy, the most obvious answer to that dilemma is that I was made for another world. It's through the search, through the mental and physical search that C.S. Lewis said it has to be Christ. Many have searched before us. 
and found Christ to be the only answer. And so, the call to us this morning is are we going to listen to wisdom and follow these wise men? Are we going to settle the search of our own hearts in Christ? It is found nowhere else. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you're going to then be free completely of searching for other things. You're still going to believe temporarily that having a better house will make your life better. And you're still going to believe temporarily that you just want to escape the world and you just want to eat and drink and have no more problems. And you're still going to believe that, that satisfaction is found in figuring out your life and you're going to have those struggles. But when you settle the search, first and foremost, into Christ, you have something to return to. You have something to come back to as you come into the worship service every week and you confess your sins. You'll know that your salvation, though, your satisfaction is rooted in Christ. And it will be a continual call to you to come back to what has already been settled, that your life is anchored in Christ and nowhere else. Because the biggest search will be over. You'll have settled it. The call to us this morning is to settle the search to, to you go away from all these other things that are so good that God has given us and know that they will not satisfy us. That only Christ will. And then, we are so free then to enjoy the gifts. To savor the gifts non-anxiously. Because the gifts then won't be bearing the freight of the whole meaningful life. And we can enjoy nature and we can set up our houses the way that we want to set them up. And we can have a glass of wine. And we can enjoy the people that God has given us and the gifts and the possessions. Because there's not the anxiety of needing those to settle the search of our hearts. And so we can go back and through, through this passage and see, look at all the good things that God has given us. We're made for Eden but we can't create it. Only Christ can. Let me ask you this question as we close. What are you most eager to have happen to you? Something you're trying to figure out? What am I doing with my life? Where's my next location? How can I get back to X, Y, or Z place? Is it an experience that you long for? Is it a possession you desire? Is it a state of life? What problem are you trying to solve and what solution is just out of reach? Do you have it? You need to preach to yourself right now that that will not satisfy your longing heart. It won't. If it does happen, if you do figure it out, if you get what you want, it will be a gift. And you can recognize it as such. But you have to rehearse this now. That will not satisfy my heart. Whatever it is will not satisfy my heart. And then you'll be in a position to receive Christ again, to return to Him, or to settle that search for the first time. He gives us Himself at the table. He offers satisfaction. But it's not found anywhere else. Let's pray.
God, you know the endeavors of our heart to return us to Eden. That we would just want to be connected and knowledgeable and satisfied. You place that desire in us. I pray that you would help us to find wisdom this morning. To see the insufficiency of all of the gifts when you are the object. We need you to give us the faith in order to believe the truth. That all things find their end and meaning in you. So by your spirit, enable us. Give us the power to recognize that and return to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.